Sing and pray with me, please. He who has ears, let him hear. Holy Spirit, we come asking this morning to reveal to us what you would desire to give us. And Lord, let us hear. And if we hear you, Father, let us not harden our hearts, but enter into your sovereign promises, into your truth. And God, would you now come and feed your people through this feeble servant of yours. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I don't know about you. It's probably a topic that's owned a lot of your hearts this morning. But I found this election to be amazingly interesting, to say the least. It is, it's, there, there's some good things, there's some bad things that have come out. There, there's a lot of division in this country right now among many Christians and among many of my friends. There's a great amount of unrest in people's lives. A lot of tension. There's a lot of embarrassment for some. It has consumed many people. Others have tried to ignore it. And to be honest with you, it's resulted in many of us in and out of the church being very cynical in general. Now, beloved, we cannot say at this election that this is not my circus and it's not my monkeys. <laughs> because it is our circus and it is our monkeys. Don't worry, I'm not going to violate any 5013C laws this morning, okay? I mean, it really is. It's a bit of a mess that each and every one of us are going to have to deal with no matter what happens Tuesday morning, Tuesday and what we wake up to Wednesday morning. God is certainly sovereign in all of this. Jesus is on his throne and in control of histories and kings and princes of the world. The Bible tells us that. And friends, we can take great comfort in that this morning. Amen. But that in no way negates our responsibility, nor does it allow us to pass the blame on someone else. And I found this in my own house. I cannot look my kids in the eyes and simply say, Luke, Samuel, Kira, this is your problem to deal with. Now, personally, as a minister of the good news of Jesus Christ, I found a lot of my discussions that seem to all seem to want to go into this election thing, no matter how hard I try to pull away from it. People are asking me, you know, Father, Preacher, Keith, whatever they call me, you know, how's this thing going to go? What's your opinion on it? But I've actually found these discussions to be a good thing. Why? Because it's brought to the forefront of a lot of people's minds. It's like people have woken up all of a sudden out of a drunken stupor, kind of like a bunch of college kids that have been partying with no regard for tomorrow. All of a sudden, people have snapped out of it and asking questions. What, what is my purpose in life? Where is all this going? What can truly unify the country, the people of God? What's going to happen to this next generation? What's going to happen to religious freedom? What are the consequences of our actions today? And for heaven's sakes, what about those sketchy emails I've been forwarding around to people? <laughs> That'll get you in trouble these days. 
Several times my interaction with people, the election has sparked questions, though, that have also allowed me to share the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ with people, or at least offered a countercultural narrative or an alternative story to people who are feeling stuck, doomed, and cynical and hopeless. So this morning, I want to ask three questions in light of this election on Tuesday, and then perhaps make a feeble, feeble attempt, very feeble attempt, to give some biblical answers to those questions in hopes that some of what is said can guide us no matter what happens on Tuesday, no matter what we wake up to Wednesday morning. So these three questions, if you've got a pen and paper, I'd ask you maybe you want to jot these down. Number one, what can we do about it? What can we do, Christians, do about it? Two, where are things going? And three, how are we going to get there? Again, what can we do about it? Where are things going and how are we going to get there? I seldom ever preach a topical sermon, but you're fixing to get one of the first ones from me, okay? Number one, what can we do about it? And I'm going to go ahead and answer that question. We need to remember whose we are, and we need to remember who we are. See, if you read through the entirety of the Bible, basically from the index over to the maps, what you're going to find is over and over and over is a God who with love that we cannot imagine, that we cannot fathom, that we cannot change, okay, who, who constantly is pursuing and drawing and calling a people to himself in hopes that they will reflect and shine his glory in and through the world. But sadly, if you read this grand story, you'll see that the people of God, most often than not, they're supposed to be kind of the solution in the world, wind up being the problem in the world because of sin. They fall short. And so God does something about it, right? You get to the New Testament. We see that Jesus, or we see that God sends Jesus, who is both fully man and fully God, to live and die as one of us. And through his shed blood, Christ reconciles his people to himself on the cross and brings us, those this morning who, will call, who call on his name to be saved, he brings us to new life in and through the power of Christ's resurrection and the Holy Spirit. That's what God does. That's what Jesus does, basically, in all the books with the red writing, right? <laughs> and so for those of us who believe here today, and this message really is for the church, okay? For those of us who believe here today, who confess with our lips and our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord, for those who are called, who are set apart, who are in Christ, we are Christians. We are called followers of the way. We are God's sons and daughters. That's who you are. That's who I am. That's who we are. That is the identity that we have first. And I stole all this from Tim Keller, okay? <laughs> Some of this, actually, what's coming next. That's who we are first in the world. Which means that being a follower of Christ comes before, before we are a Democrat, a Republican, a Libertarian, or whatever flavor you happen to be. Being a follower of Christ comes before being white, being black, being Asian, Hispanic, Caucasian, or whatever ethnicity you might be. Being a follower of Christ is who we are before, before we're a United States citizen. We're a citizen of another kingdom, the kingdom of God. So what can we do about Tuesday? What can we do about Wednesday or Thursday or Friday for that matter? 
Beloved, we can make up our minds this morning that we are simply going to be who we are. That is followers of Christ first in the world. Be who we are in the world, but not of the world. And make up our minds and resolve in our hearts that no matter who wins the election on Tuesday, that our allegiance without compromise and with great clarity is going to be first and foremost to Jesus Christ and that we're going to live his calling and that identity out as his sons and daughters in the world first before all else. That we love God with all our heart, mind, and soul. And with the help of God, we do our best to love our neighbors as ourselves first. And then simply trust that God will let the rest of it fall where he may in his sovereignty. And we can have a healthy concern about that, no less. We need to. But we will not be a people of cynicism, nor a people who are without hope. What can we do about it? Better yet, what can we do? I mean, it doesn't really matter what the issue is in life, actually. Beloved, remember whose you are. You're Jesus's. You're Jesus' people. And remember who you are in Christ and what he's done for you. See, if we're honest about it, on a micro scale, we, we really can't do a whole lot, right, to, to change the world on a, on a macro level, on something of the, the size of the office of the president of the United States. We really can't do much about picking the candidates. But here's what we can do. We can influence our families. We can influence our loved ones by reflecting Christ's unconditional love to them. We can influence our friends with radical Christ-like hospitality and compassion. We can influence the world by how and the way we do our work, by how and the way we witness for Christ, and the ways in which we live our lives before the world. Beloved, be who you are in Christ, his sons and daughters, in the world, to the world, and for the world. Beloved, we are a people of hope. A people who have hope in a world where I got to be honest with you, the average conversation I have with people these days, they don't have that hope. It's really that simple. We have hope, they don't. I don't mean that arrogantly. I don't mean that we've got it all figured out. I don't mean that we have it perfectly done. But we do have hope. So what can we do about it? Beloved, remember who you are in Christ and whose you are on Tuesday and Wednesday and beyond. You're Christ people first. Remember it. Live it out. Secondly, where are we going? This is a little bit more abstract. But we have to keep the big picture in mind. See, all of life really is worship. We see that in the passage that uh, Jim Cronkey read in Revelation 5. And I'm not going to read it because of time restraints again. So, but, but what do you mean? Okay, Revelation 5, keep the big picture in mind. What do, you, wait, what do you mean by where we are going? I mean this. Where is God taking all of history? Where is the end of God's big story? What is the destination for his church? Well, see, friends, our destination and part of the world's destination 
or our end goal or our purpose or the end of the story or the telos, if you like Latin, is found in our passage that we heard in Revelation 5 this morning. And it's helpful, to, it's helpful to have in front of us because it reminds ourselves that in situations like this election, in this little glimpse, this little moment of history, or other tense moments of, high, of life, there, there's something much bigger going on here. And see, and in, in, in really in the context of Revelation in 4 and 5, this is what happens. Briefly, God reveals to John, the revelator, an open door into heaven. It would be essentially like someone standing back there in that narthex with those two doors closed. And all of a sudden, this door opens up. And he sees deeply into what's going on in heaven, in the future. And, and, and not just the future, but really eternity past and eternity future. And I know this is a bit abstract. But he sees what is going on from times past all the way into the future. And, and, and you could really say it this way. John sees what is really, really, really real. And this snapshot view of Revelation 5 of what is taking place in heaven shows us now, if we read it, really the direction, though, the whole world is heading under the sovereign rule and reign of God in the end. And again, I don't have time to unpack it all in detail, but in Revelation 5, there's a scroll that's brought out. And essentially, it's the deed of the universe. It's presented, but no one is found worthy in that group to open it, except its rightful owner. And as the scene unfolds, Jesus Christ, who is both the strong lion, the powerful ruler of Judah, as well as the vulnerable sacrificial lamb who takes away the sin of the world, he comes in, he takes the deed of the universe into his hand, claiming his ownership to it, and all at once, heaven shakes as victory is declared for all of God's people because of what Jesus has done. And then worship breaks out with all of heaven and all of the earth, singing songs about the victory that God has accomplished for his people, and that he, in the end, has conquered all the wrong in the world. And that through the slaughtered lamb of God, the ransomed people of God are now, get this, kings and priests who rule and reign on earth with God and for God. That's where things are going. And then after that unfolds in Revelation 5, the redeemed from every generation and all of creation, including the animals and all the creatures in the sea and creation and the 24 elders who are basically represent the 12 tribes of the Old Testament and the 12 apostles. And then in the, the New Testament, you, you've got all of God's redeemed people from eternity past to eternity future falling down and worshiping at Jesus' feet. You want to know where things are going? That's where things are going. You want to know what God has intended for you and I or the destination and where we're headed, it's that's where we're headed. It's to be part of this massive victory, worshipful event that's taking place in heaven in Revelation 5, where God's people are now redeemed to rule and reign with Jesus. And that's just the beginning. You got to go over to chapter 21 to get the full end, when Jesus makes all of creation great again. You say, well, Father Keith, that's great, and that's all good. But there's a big chasm standing where I stand in life, and that whole big worshipful, massive, future worshipful thing you just described, it's going on in heaven where we're going. Beloved, let me ask you this. If Christ is the victor who has given victory to his people and has called them to humbly rule and reign with him, the lion lamb, 
And if the revealed in purpose of man is to worship God, friends, if that's where we're headed in life, if that is our destination, why do we not begin to live more that way now today in our families and our jobs and our vocations and our careers than not? So my question for you this morning is, what does it look like for you to live a life of worship that reflects Revelation 5? To live that out on Sunday, for sure, but also on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, on Thursday, Friday, you you get the point. That's the question that all of us need to be thinking about if that indeed is where God's taking history, right? Think about this. Imagine if you wanted to get to Europe from like Wilmington, North Carolina, and let's just say hypothetically you go and you buy a boat, and you're trying to figure out how to get there, okay? How do I get from Wilmington, North Carolina over to, say, like, France or something? And, and someone comes up to you and says, oh, I can tell you exactly how to do that. You need to go, you know, you need to go out here, go out of the, 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 the bay or whatever, set sail on a direct course of 85 degrees east, and that'll take you there. Simple enough, right? Now, let me ask you, if somebody told you that that's how you get there, 85 degrees north, would you go out and set your boat on 180? No, or 270 or 360, this north, east, south, you know, west. Would you do that? No. But I've got a question. But why is that how a lot of us do life? God tells us where things are going, what our place is in the world, what our purpose is, is to glorify and enjoy God forever. And in a general sense, he even tells us how to live out his love in the world and live in this world. And sadly, it seems that we go all over the place, but the direction he tells us to go. It's no wonder we find ourselves lost at sea at life, not knowing which end is up or which direction to head in, or find ourselves shipwrecked oftentimes in life. This happens when we lose the big picture, friends. The big picture of where God is taking history for his people. He's not taking his history to a world of doom and gloom, but a world where he has won the victory. So the point of this is this. In order to know where God is heading... And where God is taking things, we have to keep the big picture in mind. We have to keep our destination in mind. That the world's destination is in like Revelation 4 and 5 and in chapter 21. Where indeed at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess and worship and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So okay, we're to be who we are. We're to remember where we're going and where God is taking history. How are we going to get there? Well, friends, the vehicle that gets us there is the church. Say, what do you mean? Well, see, living out our Christian lives in the world and learning to live a life of worship can only be done mainly in and through the church. So how are we going to get there? How are we going to get to our destination? God's church. But have you ever heard any of these statements? Maybe you've said some of these. You know, preacher, is there really anything special about going to church? I mean, I can read my Bible alone. I'm a soul of scripture, a person. I don't need help with any of this from the church. Or Lord forbid, another pastor or anybody else reading the scriptures. I can stay at home and watch church on TV and be just fine with Bedside Baptist. 
Maybe you've heard this. I like Jesus, but I can't stand his followers. Some of you are laughing. You've heard them, or it's true, you know, or we've said them. I've said these things years past, gone years and years ago. But anyway, or this one. Pastor, let's just be honest. The church is irrelevant. It's out of date and too ignorant and arrogant to realize that it does not express or represent well the people who sit in her pews on Sunday. Oh, yeah. Heard any of those? Maybe you've said some of those. Well, what did John see in Revelation 5 among God's redeemed people, his church? He saw worship. And worship of God is really what we are made for. And that is what we see in that passage that Jim read that creation is made for. Concerning this issue of worship, N.T. Wright says this. He says, when human beings give their heartfelt allegiances to worship that which is not God, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. He says, one of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship. What's more, you reflect what you worship, not only to the object you worship itself, but also outward to the world around. He goes on to say, he says, those who worship money, gives an example, he says, those who worship money increasingly define themselves in term of it, and increasingly treat other people as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers rather than human beings. He said those who worship sex define themselves in terms of it, their preferences, their practices, their past histories, and increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sex objects. He said those in our world that worship power define themselves in terms of it, And treat other people as either collaborators, competitors, or pawns. He goes on to say, these and many other forms of idolatry combine in a thousand ways, all of them damaging to the image-bearing quality of the people who do this and of those whose lives they touch. Friends, worship is a very powerful thing. And friends, we are what we worship. You are what you worship. In a similar vein, Jamie Smith in his book, You Are What You Love, You Are What You Love, says this. He says, the church, though, the body of Christ, is the place where God invites us each week to renew our loves, reorient our desires, and retrain our appetites. We are nourished by the word and receive the bread of life. The church is the household where the Spirit feeds us what we need and where by His grace we become a people who desire Jesus above all else. Christian worship is the feast where we acquire new hungers for God and for what God desires and are then sent into His creation to act accordingly. Friends, N.T. Wright is right. We are what we worship. And that God has made humanity to worship and glorify God, but we often get it wrong. 
And Smith argues rightly too that the church is really the only vehicle out there that correctly places the correct object of worship before us constantly, that being Jesus Christ. And so when we come to Christ Church Winston-Salem or attend Christ Church Louisville Parish and experience Sunday after Sunday after Sunday the collective body and bride of Christ or what we experience when we go Sunday after Sunday after Sunday as the collective body, of, uh, uh, the collective body and bride of Christ, we, we experience this recalibration, this recalibrating of our hearts, this recalibrating of our loves and our soul's deepest needs and desires as Jesus is set before us in word, in sacrament, through the power of the Holy Spirit. So why the church? How is the church the only vehicle? Can I do this on my own? Well, let me ask you a couple of several questions. Beloved, where else are you going to learn to discern the truth of God from the lies and falsehood of the world without hearing the truth of the word of God? How are you gonna do that? See, it's the word of God that, through the power of the Holy Spirit that really has the power to transform sin and make it and transform sin to, and, and change our corrupted natures over into a, a new creation. It's the word of God that has the power to come into our life to bring beauty and true life and even light in the darkness. Where else are we going to learn and develop the correct habits of heart and mind and body to live out like things like Revelation 5 in our lives and to know what true worship looks like except for the church? Friends, where are you going to hear about what is really right, what is really good, what is really true, what is really beautiful in this world, except for the church? Where are you going to hear what is really wrong with the world? You can listen to all the newscasts you want. There's one word you're never going to hear, probably. Sin, fallenness, corruption. Okay, so if that's the problem, then where are you going to hear about salvation from sin? The government? <laughs> no. May see some bad examples of it. <laughs> listen, the church and his people are the only ones who have, listen, who have and can proclaim the saving message that Christ, the Lamb of God, came in his love to die and set the world free from sin, that it is, that it is Christ who came to overcome death, or one of our biggest problems, who came to conquer the devil in the grave and then adopt us as children as his own. We're the only people who have that message. So where else are you going to hear it? Where are you going to hear about the ultimate radical self-giving love that God has for you? Where else are you going to hear the call to take up your own cross and die to your wayward passions? Where are you going to hear that when this world is more concerned, honestly, about those things into right, name, sex, power, and money? I mean, it's just honestly. Where are you going to hear those things? Cosmopolitan magazine? No. The church. Where else are you going to receive and feast on the bread of life and the word of God? Things that will truly fill and sustain you, but the church. 
Where else are you going to go to learn? Where else are you going to go to learn to live a countercultural life of love, of true kindness, of true patience, of true compassion, of true gentleness and love? That, that all things that God calls good. Where else are you going to learn to live that countercultural life except the church? Where else are we going to go to be set free for holy living, reflecting his love and mercy and order and light in a world that is full of darkness, corruption, and disorder, but the church? If someone else has got some better answers about this, I'll be at the back of the door. You can talk to me after the service. I'd be glad to hear those. Friends, the church, nothing else does this. Nothing else. Listen, as imperfect as she may be, that's how God does it. So let me ask you one last question. Do you see Hillary or Donald or whoever running the show in Revelation 5 or 21 or any other book of the Bible? No. That's Jesus' job. Friend, listen well. The government, the government cannot save you. Do not act as if it can. Only Jesus can do that. Don't believe the lie that it can. So, beloved of God, for this week, let us with hope and joy remember who and whose we are in Christ. You are Jesus' own. Remember where God is taking history in the end, a place where all of God's creation will worship and adore him and all the wrong in the world will eventually be put right and then begin to live life out in nature of that, knowing that that's where we're going, knowing that there is victory at the end of this promise, knowing that, that, that this world is not it. What you see right now is not it. It is not the final chapter. And in between these times, as we wait for his coming in glory, let us be fully in and part of his church where God in the midst of his community people is always re-loving us every week here at this table. He's always forgiving us of our sins. He's always challenging us to, to put off those things, those burdens and sins and, 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 and things that have us enslaved. Where he's always recalibrating us every week and reorienting our hearts to remember that we are his beloved sons and daughters in this world. That is who we are. That is whose we are, that we are Jesus's. Let us live that out this Tuesday and this Wednesday. In the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. amen. I invite you this time to stand as we confess the faith we believe in the words of the Nicene Creed.